1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> By the way, we're going to cover quite a few verses before we finish this topic on discontentment. But for right now, I want to pick out three verses from chapter 7. That's verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24, because all three verses repeat a same principle we're going to be looking at tonight. Dealing with discontentment. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. But as, as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Now let me stop here and make a quick comment. This is free, okay? Did you notice Paul didn't say we're going to vote on this? You notice that? It's our ordainment to be true in every church. Now I realize even here we are a con- congregational uh, church and we, we vote that way, but I'm not sure it's always biblical. Because I found out a long time ago the majority is not always right. So Paul said, I ordain it in all churches. And by the way, he had apostolic authority. I realize that. Skip down to verse 20. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Skip down to verse 24. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Do you see the pattern there? I look at those three verses. And right away I realize Paul is trying to drive a point home. I find it kind of interesting in verse 17, he reminds us that God has given something to every man or woman, if you will. And God has called everyone. So we've been placed here by God, called by God. In verse 20, every man should abide in whatever calling they were saved in. And in verse 22, again, Paul repeats that, you know, abide where you are, where you've been called, and abide with God wherever you are. And so we're looking at how to deal with discontentment. And real quick, just a review from last week, we had, I thought it good to define contentment. And uh, one dictionary, I think it was Merriam-Webster I looked up last week, uh, defined contentment as a state of being contented Satisfaction, ease of mind, or the act of contentedly, of being contentedly satisfied. How many people you know fit that bill? The act of being contented. I think you'll agree in our society today, especially in the American culture, it is difficult to find someone who is truly content with whatever their situation in life is. And yet the Bible has a whole lot to say about that. A whole lot to say about contentment. Being satisfied with what we have. Being satisfied with who we are. And being satisfied with where we are going. It's interesting, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us to be content with what we have. But he also gives a direct command 
not to worry about the things of this world. That's easy to say, isn't it? Not so easy to do. And as we consider what Jesus said about being content, we have to conclude that the lack of contentment in our lives is sin. And Jesus says that places us, our lack of contentment, places us in the same category as the Gentiles. Because they clamor and worry about all those things. But how we know we have everything we need in Christ. Everything we need. We're reading from one of Paul's letters to the church of Corinth. And if you study the scriptures at all, you know the apostle Paul uh, suffered a whole lot. <clears throat> Paul went without a lot of times the comforts of life. And he gives a whole list in this letter to the church of Corinth. And in Paul suffered, I think, more than most of us could ever imagine. And yet Paul tells us when he wrote the church at Philippi, he says, I have learned to be Content. And I've always thought, Paul, how in the world could you? After all you have been through. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to be content with whatever we have. Be content with what we have. And yet we live in a culture, in a world, where people continue to seek for more and more things of this world, and they are hardly ever contented with whatever their lot in life is. They always want something different. Years ago, when I worked at General Motors, there was a fellow that worked with me, and my, we, you know, whatever job you did on one side of the car, on the other side of the line, somebody else did the other half of the car. Or the other, if you worked on the left front wheel, the other guy worked on the right front wheel. And so we would, you know, we would be there all day, whatever. And he was telling me one time, he got a job, he just got out of the Army, this would be back in the late 60s, early 70s, and he got a job at the Continental Can Company, somewhere up around Blue Asher, I believe it is, and he said, I like that job, he said, a pretty good job, it wasn't hard, and so all he had to do was, he watched as those cans come by, if there was a bad one, he would pick it off, you know, and move it out of the way. Been there a day or two, and the boss come by and says, hey, he says, uh, how you like your job? He said, well, I like it okay, but I'd rather have that job over there. <laughs> so about noon, that was in the morning early, and the noon the boss came by. So I tell you what, he said, uh, since you're not happy where you're at, when you leave today, don't come back. <laughs> A lack of contentment. So when the Bible says we're to be content with such things we have, that means that you and I, we don't put our trust in things. We don't base our happiness on circumstances. We put our trust and we put our confidence in God. We are content in God. And we also have to understand, if we're going to have contentment, that God uses even sometimes the hard times of our lives to test our faith. It's always for our good and His glory. But what about discontentment? We mentioned last week it's been around forever. The first time we hear when Satan decided he didn't want to be where he was at. He didn't, wasn't sad of being the highest angel. He wanted to be like God. And you know that cost him. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, the garden that God had made to place man in and woman in, the perfect place, had all they could ever ask for. Somehow, Satan comes along and he sows the seed of discontentment, doesn't he? You're missing something. And isn't that the root of discontentment? 
Somehow we were convinced we are missing something. Now, where we grew up in, in, in uh, just about 20 miles, 15 miles east of St. Louis, Missouri, on the Illinois side, our school, we didn't have a middle school. We went to the first eight grades and then into high school uh, in the grade nine. And for uh, one summer between uh, eighth grade and high school, I worked for a dairy farmer. And he also hired another boy about my age. And he was very, this, this farmer was pretty wise. He knew you can't put two kids together. They want to play, right? And so we each had our job. And I knew what mine was. And the other fellow, I can't remember his name, he knew what his, what his was. And all the while I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of things, you know, uh, you know, making sure we're feeding the cows. That's my part of it. Uh, helping get the hay in and blah, blah, blah. It was almost something different every day. But this guy, the guy, he got to drive a tractor every day. I mean, if you ever uh, worked in a barnyard before with Gary Callahan, thank you, Paul. Uh, cattle, you know, cows eat a lot, and guess what else they do a lot? <laughs> I've said, right? But that barn lot had to be cleaned every day, and this farmer had a particular tractor with a front loader bucket on it, and he also had a honey wagon. You know what a honey wagon is? Had nothing to do with honey, okay? <laughs> a manure spreader. And this boy's job was every day after to clean that barn lot up. Every day. Didn't fail. And I thought, man, that's a better job. He gets to drive the tractor. And I don't know what happened. One day we were eating lunch together. And I, we brought it up. I said, man, I don't know. I said, uh, this is what I do, blah, blah, blah. You got a better job. He said, wait a minute. I'd rather do what you're doing. So neither one of us were really content. And we always have a trouble and a problem with that. So in Genesis 3, Satan comes. He deceives Eve. She was was content, but now she's not all of a sudden. And right there, the seed of discontentment was sown. And guess what's happened? We've lived unhappily ever since. Isn't that true? Ever since. After Eden... Man has never been fully satisfied with anything on earth. And now, several thousand years later, for the most part, we are still not satisfied. We're always wanting something different. And by the way, the problem is we were born that way. We were born discontented. So that's not unusual to be that way. That's how we were born. Now, I mentioned this last week. I think there, there's a certain amount of discontentment that can be good. It helps us to strive for better things and moves us forward, if you will, uh, to invent things and have better lives. But there's a certain kind of discontentment that will always lead us down the wrong road. Always lead us down the wrong path. I gave you five signs last week. I'm going to just name them again, then we're going to move on. If your life is filled with envy, uh, uncontrolled ambition, uh, critical spirit, complaining spirit, kind of almost the same, or outbursts of anger, uh, those are signs that discontentment is dragging your life down. Now, by the way, as children of God, and I'm including myself, We ought to be the most contented people on earth. But sometimes we are not. See, the problem is, 
the person who's discontented, they look around and they, they make their mind up, I deserve something better than this. They don't know what it is, but it's got to be better than what they have. And that kind of person who's never happy and never satisfied will drag those around them into the same swamp with them. We need to do what Paul did, learn to be content and no matter what our circumstances. Oof. Did you ever know anybody who's never happy? Who rarely had a good word to say? I mean, you know what the problem is? You know why they cannot be happy? Because they won't be happy. doesn't matter. They've made their mind up, I am not going to be happy. And they're, they're, they're not satisfied. They cannot be satisfied because they determined we will, I will not be satisfied. Now, by the way, if you know somebody, like, and I hope you're not like that. Because a person who is like that, you know what? They're miserable today. And guess what about tomorrow? They'll be miserable then because they're never satisfied. So how do we win this battle? <clears throat> how do we deal with discontentment and live a life that God wants us to live? Now again, as I read the New Testament and, and the Old as well, I think the consensus we would agree with tonight for sure is that being discontent is a sin. Is a sin. And any sin we allow to infiltrate our lives is the result of wrong theology. Of wrong theology. How many know because you're saved doesn't mean it'll always go well for you? It won't. How many know because you're saved you'll have all the money you ever need? Well, let me back up. You will have all you need, but you won't have all you want. Okay? No guarantee there. Simply no guarantee. So here in 1 Corinthians 7, sort of in the middle of the chapter, uh, Paul gives us, I think, some good teaching on these topics. Now, by the way, just sort of a disclaimer here. You know, you sometimes you watch a movie or maybe a documentary and they'll say the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Well, the issues that Paul and the New Testament Church dealt with are different than the issues we do today. But the principles are the same. The principles that Paul shared to the Corinthian church apply to our life today. So we're going to look at four principles that will help us face and deal with the problem of being discontented. Now the first one is we, we where we are because God put us here. God has given us assignment to our life. This is where we are. And we read it in our text. Today, in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24, and we won't read them again, but three different times, Paul says, in whatever lot God has called you in, remain there. Don't try to change your situation. So Paul says, lead the life that God assigns to you, even though you may not understand it. Now think about that. Even though we may not understand it. So Paul said, even when you don't understand, lead that life. Now, by the way, when I don't understand, it reminds me I'm not God. 
There's only one, and I'm not him. So the message is, Paul says, the way God made you, stay in the place God put you. Be a Christian, now hear me well, where you are right now. Serve God wherever you are right now. Now, by the way, let me clarify something here. Anything that's sinful in our lives were to change. There's no doubt about that. The Bible is clear on that. But evidently, some of the Christians at Corinth, uh, now being saved out of idolatry, uh, they were abandoning every part of their old life in favor of something radically different. And the same thing still happens today. Now, again, if it's sin, we need to get rid of it. No doubt about that. But there's some things we simply don't need to change. And, and Paul gives us uh, some examples here. Uh, you know, there's no better evidence of conversion than staying where we are and showing the change by the way we live where we are. Now, again, we remind you that the circumstances are different. The issues that the church dealt with then <coughs> that we're going to mention tonight are different than we do today. But the principles that we glean from them are still the same. Now, one example that Paul gives in the text in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is that of a circumcision. And so Paul gives that as an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 18 and 19. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the law, I'm sorry, the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, remember, there were some Jews being saved. Not a whole lot, but there were some. There were some Gentiles being saved. And Paul says to the Jewish Christians, you don't need to reverse your circumcision. But he also says to the Gentile Christians, you don't need to be circumcised. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Now, I find it kind of interesting. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in our text. He also wrote to the Christians of Galatia. And in Corinthians, he says, the important thing is not circumcision, whether or not you are. The important thing is keeping the commandments of God. He writes to the churches of Galatia. He says, look, The issue here is not circumcision, it's faith, which you work out by love. So the Bible is clear. When it comes to salvation, circumcision doesn't matter, neither does uncircumcision. Neither one has a value, any value, in our circumcision. What's Paul saying? All we need is found in Jesus Christ. Everything we need is found in Christ. All the benefits that God has for us, it's not found in these rituals. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every aspect of our salvation 
Every component of life we live after conversion has to be rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the important thing. Thank God we have a personal relationship with Him. We are part of His family. We are clothed with His righteousness. We are filled with His Spirit. We are His children. And now we have been brought in, incorporated into the body of believers, but it's only in Christ. He's all we need. So Paul says to believers, he says, stay exactly where you were when Christ saved you. His point is this. Any outward change you make concerning these things makes no difference at all. Now, by the way, if it involves sin, yeah, make that change. But you don't need to change everything. Because it's not the outward change that's important, it's the inward change. It works from the inside out. And so Paul says, focus not on circumcision or uncircumcision, Focus on keeping the commandments of God and focus on your faith in God. Focus on those and have a desire to conform your heart in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord God. Now, evidently, now, by the way, uh, you'll find here in Corinthians, in in this section of Corinthians here, uh, Paul is answering questions. And we are not given the exact question, but we can infer the question by what the answer he gives. They had written to him about certain things going on in the church. And so evidently, Paul got word somehow, uh, whether by a, a letter, by word of mouth, that evidently some of the Corinthians were ready to make wholesale changes in their life without even thinking about all of the ramifications of that. And so Paul says, look, The key here is this. Wherever you are when God saves you, be a Christian there. Live for God now. And the bottom line is this. Paul says we can do God's work. We can demonstrate our faith anywhere. Anywhere. So Paul said if you're a Gentile, and of course you're not circumcised, don't think for a moment you need to be circumcised once you're saved. Paul said, doesn't matter. Either way, doesn't make any difference. Stay where you are. If you're circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. Paul says, don't worry about that one way or the other. So the principle is, serve Christ where you are. The issue is different. The principle is the same. A second example Paul gives is slavery. Verse 21 and 22. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave... Is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's 
slave. Now, by the way, if you know the scripture, Paul never once condemned slavery. Okay, never. He wasn't leading a battle against the institution of slavery. And I want to suggest tonight it's not our job to do that. Our job is to serve Christ. That's our highest priority. But nonetheless, in New Testament times, slavery was common throughout the entire Roman Empire. Now think about that. There's, it's estimated that one out of five people in Roman Empire were slaves. One out of five people. And again, I'm taking somebody else's words for it. It's estimated that in the New Testament times, uh, when Paul wrote this letter, it was probably about 100 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now remember the gospel being preached. And because slavery was a major part of life in the Roman Empire, the fact of the matter is, in a lot of cities, there would be more slaves than free people. More slaves than free people. And so, again, we know that the gospel being preached, people are being saved, and certainly, eventually, a lot of slaves would respond to the gospel and become a part of the church. So what did the gospel have to say about their sad situation? It wasn't always the best. Now, by the way, let me remind you that um, slaves were just property. They were no more than a piece of furniture. Uh, but a lot of times slaves were doctors or lawyers. Uh, but nonetheless, they were still property. And, and, you know, the advice that Paul gives, it sounds a little weird to us. Uh, and certainly I don't think Paul today would be politically correct, do you? Not in anything, he's, almost anything he said. But what I think what he's telling slaves here, he says, don't worry about your slavery. And again, the issue is different, but the principle is the same. Serve God where you are. Serve God. Where you are. Some while back, I think Jesse spent one Sunday evening preaching through the book of Philemon. Is that correct, Jess? And what was that all about? The slave. Yeah. And how it should be dealt with. So Paul said, hey, if you're a slave, don't worry about that. Now, if you can be free, that's fine. Take advantage of it. But don't make it the heartbeat of your life. Don't live just for that. Live for God wherever you are. Now, again, verse 21, he does say, if you can become free, okay, do that. But please understand, that would never apply to most slaves in that culture. Because in those days, it would be rare for a master to free their slaves. Now, it happened, but it was not usual. Now, by the way, a slave could uh, uh, purchase their own freedom, but it was very, very expensive, and it would take a long, long time, and even that was not practiced throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul says, here's the truth. If you were a slave, when you were saved, 
And whether you understand it or not, in that culture, in that day, you will likely remain a slave forever. That's the stark truth. And so that only begs to one question. Are you willing to serve God even in that disagreeable situation? Paul doesn't cut any corners here. He realizes what the fact may be. They may never get out of slavery in this life. So are you willing to serve God in that situation or will you end up focusing so much on your slavery you don't serve God? Again, the issues are different. The principles are the same. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord, notice this, while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free in Christ, I'm sorry, while free, is Christ's slave. Now, again, you heard me say it before, I think the greatest teacher other than Jesus Christ was the Apostle Paul. And he does it so well. And you'll need to, you need to notice in a lot of his teaching, and it happens here, Paul takes his argument, and he moves it from the exterior to the interior. That's what he's doing. Paul says, it's better to be a slave on the outside and a free man in your heart. It's better because you know Jesus Christ than to be free on the outside and to be enslaved to sin on the inside. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because those who do not know Christ, whether they're a slave physically, are still slaves to sin. And so Paul says, once you're saved, and you are say a slave when you're saved, I hope it'll get tongue-tied here. Paul says, you are Christ's freed man. He has set you free from sin. Serve God where you are. And so Paul says, it's better to know Jesus Christ than to be free on the outside and to be a slave to sin. Now, by the way, I know that Jesus died to set me free, but he died to make me a slave to him. I'm his doulos, his servant, his slave. And so, again, the issues are different. Principles the same. Knowing Jesus Christ far surpasses any outward circumstance. Knowing him is most important of all. First Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What's Paul saying? You're bought with a price. And Paul is speaking about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's what's interesting. There's a dual purpose here. If Jesus Christ has purchased you, if you're born again, he has. We are now free from sin, but also a servant of Christ. Free from sin, but a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, looking at the issue in Paul's day, the application then would be very clear. Don't let your slavery be an excuse not to serve the Lord. Serve Him where you are. Now, again, issues are different. Principle the same. And we need to understand, we can infer from that, no matter what extreme circumstance we might find ourselves in life, we still need to serve God there. Oh, my goodness. People I've heard through the years. Well, preacher, I'll become more dedicated when? I'll become more dedicated if. Uh, when I retire, I'll become more dedicated. You know what the Bible says? Hogwash. Serve God where you are. Serve God where you are. Now I want to make it clear tonight, folks. So many times in life we find ourselves in circumstances that we'd rather not be in. Happens all the time. All kinds of people. And sometimes we might be in those places for days, for weeks, for months, but it might be a lifetime. And so we've got to determine we are going to serve God no matter where we are. That's the principle. Serve God no matter where we are. I don't know. Maybe this is sacrilegious. But I've often thought, Lord, just give me a button to push. Amen? Uh, you know, give me a button to push or at least some kind of formula that I can use to make the difficulty go away. How many of that doesn't work? Jess, you read this morning, and Paul prayed about his soul in the flesh. And you know what Paul rejoiced in? He realized that when he was weak, when Paul was weak, Christ was strong. That needs to be the prayer of our heart to understand that. And so, in those cases, when we can't make it go away, we have to make a decision. Am I going to serve God here or not? Make up your mind. So, where does that bring us? Well, the issue is God, not our circumstances. Now remember, I shared, Paul shared a few uh, examples. We'll take some more next week. But again, Paul emphasized those issues are not the main deal. It's God. God is the issue. Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi, sort of giving a, a quick testimony. And Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am, in, I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. 
Do you think Paul knew what he was talking about? Yeah. Paul knew what it was to live high on the hog. Now, you know, he was a Jew. He didn't, of course, but you know what I'm talking about. He knew what it was like to have enough. But he also knew what it was like to barely get by. And Paul said, no, no matter what my situation is or was, I have been instructed to be full if needed and to be hungry if needed. I've been taught to abound and suffer need. And Paul said, I can do either one because Christ gives me strength to get through it. I look at a verse like that, or a passage like a Philippians 4, 11 through 13, and I think it's fair to say that Paul came to a point in his life that the issue was God. Not his circumstances. The issue was God. And I want to challenge all of us tonight. Challenge all of us tonight. You and I, we need to come to a point in our lives that the issue is God and not our circumstances. Now, I don't need to tell you our circumstances change. What about God? He never does. And by the way, He is good. Thank you, Wayne. He's good all the time. That never changes. Now, by the way, in spite of what the Stoics might try to teach you, uh, being content is not just, hey, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That's not contentment. Because we can never rely upon our self sufficiency. Because the issue is not ourselves, it's not our circumstances, the issue is God. And, and the question is this, and I gave that book away to somebody. I, shouldn't, I should have kept it. And I don't remember the exact title, but it was a tremendous book. And the premises was, if you lost everything but Christ, how would your life be? And that's why we've got to come to a point in our lives where the issue is God. Not what we have, what we don't have, not our circumstances. It's God. And we have to realize our resources to cope with life doesn't come from us. It comes from God. He's the issue. And, and true contentment is never it's never found in our circumstances. Not ever. Because our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ alone. Like Paul said, I can do all things through him. So, where are we at? Serve God where we are. Until God clearly calls you somewhere else. Serve Him where you are until God changes your circumstance, whatever it might be. Serve Him where you are.
I don't think it's biblically wrong to better ourselves. But we need to learn a principle here tonight, folks. More money or a new position never guarantees a better situation. We must seek God first. The issue is God, not our circumstances. So if I'm going to live for God, I can do that no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what my situation I find myself in, if I'm going to serve God, I can serve Him there. But also know the opposite is true. If I'm not going to serve God, I can not serve Him anywhere. So the issue is not our circumstances. The issue is God, not my circumstances. How often have we said, Lord, change my circumstances and I'll be happy. How many know it's a lie from the devil? Change my circumstances and then I will be happy. That's what we want to say. But the Bible says, get close to God and let him take care of your circumstances. Let him take care of your circumstances. So I look at what Paul, as he addresses the issue of circumcision, uncircumcision, slavery. The question Paul is asking, what does it matter what we are called to do? If we're called to do it, praise God for it and do it. Because no matter who you are, if we're serving Christ, we are honored in His sight. We are honored in His sight. Now, I don't think for a moment Paul was arguing against change. Because Paul knew, like we know, change is inevitable in life. But please understand, change is never guaranteed to be the solution to our problems And our situations, never guaranteed. And by the way, that brings our next point next week. Change is not wrong, but it's not always better. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. So precious. And Father, I pray that you would challenge our hearts tonight. I pray, Lord, that we would be content. Realizing that, Lord, you are God and you are good all the time. And knowing that no matter what our circumstances are, they are not the issue, Lord, you are. And God, help us each one tonight, those who name the name of Christ, to serve you where we are. And as always, Lord, I pray for those who are lost. I pray that they would realize that the only one who can set them free from the bondage of sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, they would run to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray this in the precious name of Christ, my Lord. Amen.